Welcome to the Eat Right Nutrition Podcast, where we partner with experts in the health, wellness, and nutrition field to deliver you an excellent variety of content based on real science, real facts, and real food. I'm your host, Aron. And I'm Nicole. And today we're talking walking, artificial sweeteners, and much more with Dr. Joey Munoz. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode number 120 of the Eat Right Nutrition Podcast. Today, we have a very special guest, once again, who we absolutely love having on this podcast, Dr. Joey Munoz. Joey, how are you doing? Doing fantastic. We'll see at the end of this conversation, but right now I'm doing pretty good. (laughs) A lot's changed in your life since the last time that we spoke. You recently had, how how many months ago did you have a baby? Two and a half months. Actually... In four days, it'll be three months exactly. Wow. Okay. Yeah, how's that? August how's dadding? How's that going? It's great, man. It's a, a huge learning curve. Um, I feel like women innately have like that motherly sense. And I've never heard of a fatherly sense. So I don't <laughs> think it exists. But no, man, it's, a, it's, a, it's great. It's a learning curve for sure. I'm still learning every day. I think even at this point, the baby's only three months old. There's like, so little he can really do and so little that I feel like I can really do with him, you know, where it's still like, I, I keep saying that I'm waiting for him to be able to play and move around and stuff. And I'm just like, enjoy now because this time won't come back, but like he can't really do much right now. But I, 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 I love spending time with him. I take him on walks every day. Hopefully that starts instilling the, the habit of getting outside and walking around. Um, my wife and the baby were out of town this weekend because she went to New York to see her grandma. She was actually up like by uh, Lake Champlain, all the way up there. No, um, idea. no idea where that is. Essex County, Essex County, pretty much like right near uh, Canada. But anyways, so she was up there and I didn't see them for four days. And I was like, man, I really missed the baby. So I was looking at baby pictures all weekend. And then when they got here on Monday, they got here at night. So it was like 11, th- uh, no, like 1030 when I picked them up from the airport. We didn't really go to sleep until like 11. Threw the baby's sleep schedule off. He just like woke up all night long at five in the morning. He was up. And I'm like, yeah, I didn't miss this. <laughs> because <laughs> I, I slept so well when they were out of town. And I haven't really gotten like really good sleep. You know when you go to sleep and you wake up and you look at your clock and it's like six in the morning, seven in the morning. Like, whoa, it's already this time. Like it feels like you just just fell asleep five minutes ago. Mm-hmm. That's how it was all, all weekend long. I'm like, when the baby's here. I'm waking up like four or five times a night. So it's, it's not the best. <laughs> it's not the best for the gains, Jerome. Well, this is yeah. what this is the next question, right? How is it affecting your workouts and your food? Or is it at all affecting? It hasn't affected my ability to train at all because thankfully I'm in a very privileged position. I mean, I work from home. Mm-hmm. Um, we're in a comfortable spot where my wife doesn't have to work. That's one thing we've talked about. Like, we're really lucky that she doesn't have to work for however long she doesn't want to work because Mm -hmm. I always knew a baby was a full-time job. Like, it's really a full-time job 24-7 because the baby's so attached to mom where, like, the moment she walks away, even if he was asleep, he'll, like, smell that she walked away and he'll start crying, you know? So it's like, thank God she's there next to him because even if you, like, hired somebody else, it just wouldn't be the same, right? So it's really nice that we have that luxury and my gym is like walking distance from my house. It's under a two minute drive. 
Mm-hmm. So usually around noon, I'll take a break from work. I'll go to the gym. When I get back, she goes to the gym for about 30, 40 minutes. And I'll just walk the baby during that time. Because when I walk him, he just sleeps. So no crying. Um, so training has not taken a hit at all. Nutrition hasn't taken a hit. But they, when people talk about like having a baby and nutrition taking a hit, I mm-hmm. kind of laugh. I don't want to laugh because I know, I know scientifically, if you're not sleeping well and stuff, that can affect food choices and hunger and all that. But the analogy I like to use is like, when you have a baby, you still have to eat and you still have to prepare your food. So like, you still have pretty good control of your food choices, I think. I think where I have more sympathy with people is like when they can't get physical activity and because of how busy they are with the baby. Mm-hmm. But thankfully that's been okay with me. The one thing that hasn't been the greatest is performance, right? Because of the sleep disturbances like that. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't say I've regressed in training, but I definitely have not really been progressing much at all, which isn't the best, but I know it's just part of the journey. It'll be fine in a couple of months. I'm not stressing it at all. What you're saying in terms of instilling all of the habits, they're already there. And so you're just basically maintaining and continuing where I think it's harder if you are trying to create habits while having a a baby for the first time and doing all of that at once. You know what I mean? Saying so. I actually just started working with a client the reason he signed up with me is because he's worried about his health because he just had a baby like a week ago. So yeah. he was like, if I purchase coaching, at least this will help with accountability. I'm like, that makes sense. It, it, it should, yeah. right? Because I feel like just the thought that you have to report to somebody, your coach, like keeps you a little bit more adherent. But no, you're completely right. The, the habits are in place. It's just like the performance sucks. Sometimes I go to the gym, like dragging my feet, just literally wanting to go to sleep. And when I do that, I, I have no expectations of my of my performance, right? I just go in to do the movements. Sometimes I surprise, surprise myself. It goes better than expected. Yeah. Um, at first I was a little bit harsh or like down on myself because I was like, man, I'm losing my gains. This sucks. <laughs> but uh, after a couple months and you realize like that's not true at all. Been able to maintain my weight just fine. I think I've been able to maintain my physique just fine. So I'm pretty happy with how things are going. Well, I think it's actually probably the opposite, right? Like if you don't, if you're not structured in other areas of your life and then you're really trying to push in the gym in your workouts, like that's where I feel like that would be more detrimental to your gains than anything. Well, oh, you mean like in terms of like your nutrition and recovery? Yeah. Like if you're not getting adequate sleep, for example. Yeah. Well, I'm not getting adequate sleep. So the performance is definitely not, not good. Like I still show up at the gym, but I just can't train as hard and I definitely can't handle as much volume. Like if I get a really hard workout in today, I will definitely feel it tomorrow. Whereas mm-hmm. before I would recover like super quick. You know, I could train legs three times a week with a good amount of volume and be perfectly fine. Like I still do that, but with way less volume because the recovery definitely takes a hit when I'm when you're not sleeping well. And I used to think I had bad sleep before because I usually wake up once or twice a night, um, like to use the restroom. But now that I'm waking up like five, six times a night, it's a whole other ballgame. <laughs> but um my whole thought is like once the baby starts sleeping all night long and i get good sleep again i'm gonna feel like i'm on cloud nine bro like pretty much performance enhancing drugs without the without actually taking anything so we'll see that's what i'm looking forward to nice uh you mentioned walks with the with the baby and that's something that you do regularly yeah i want to talk a little bit about because there are a decent amount of I guess, meta-analyses or, or systemic reviews right now that have come out in regards to walking and the health benefits of that. Where are we at in the science of that? Because I think it's important to kind of bat... We always tell people, 
get 7k steps, get 10k steps, Yeah, you know, and we're always driving this, but I think it's important to talk, uh, to speak about it from kind of like a evidence-based uh, standpoint as well. Yeah. So I made a, a video recently and that's maybe where this question is coming from. I'm not sure if you saw it or not, but I made a video on like the relationship between step count and all cause mortality and sure it's correlational. It's not causational, but in general, people who walk more have lower incidence of cardiovascular disease, diabetes, pretty much all diseases, even, even, uh, diseases associated with cognitive decline, right? Like Alzheimer's, et cetera, and overall less all cause mortality. Uh, now people are like, is walking really that good for preventing disease? And the answer is yes, but it doesn't just have to be walking, right? I think walking is just like an easy exercise to measure because you can just measure step count. But what matters is just like moving your body, right? But there are a couple of reasons why I prefer walking for most people over other exercises, and I'll talk about this in a second. But even similarly to this, there's um, a study showing that push-up count, how many push-ups can you do in one set, is also associated with all-cause mortality. And the relationship saying if you can do more push-ups in a set, lower, lower risk of all-cause mortality. And people are like, oh, are push-ups like a magical exercise? And the answer is like, no, it's just an easy indicator of overall upper body strength, right? So if you're stronger, if you're more mobile, if you move around more, you have a lower risk of developing some of these diseases. And we all know the benefits of physical activity, right? The reason that I think walking is so beneficial is one, because it's a low stress activity, right? That requires like no equipment, like anybody can do it. If you say you can't walk, you're lying, right? Even at work, like... If you take a phone call, anytime I'm on the phone, I'm walking around. Literally, I'll just go to my living room and walk around the, uh, or the kitchen and walk around the table for like 20 minutes if I'm on a call for 20 minutes. So walking is extremely accessible, extremely low risk and, and extremely and, and like not fatiguing at all. Right. So those are some very easy benefits because even the most out of shape person who has never exercised can start to implement some steps, maybe not 10,000, but they can start with a thousand steps, you know. On top of that, for those of us that lift regularly and are interested in like bodybuilding or whatever, walking can help promote recovery. There's also some evidence that getting some steps in like or, or, or walking after your training or even on off days can help improve recovery by increasing blood flow, incre increasing nutrient delivery, oxygen to the muscles. So there's just like a, a number of benefits, right? And, and the big reason why I like it is since my job is pretty sedentary, I'm like, okay, I need to purposefully move so that I'm not super sedentary. And it's like, I can walk or I can do cardio. And I don't like cardio, but besides that, if I do strenuous cardio, especially now since I am in a sleep deprived state pretty much always, it really doesn't take an impact on my recovery, right? So for me, it's like, why would I do something that's really intense when I already do something that's really intense, which is my lifting. And walking could actually help improve the lifting, help improve the recovery. So for me, it's, it's a no brainer. But yeah, for in general, I'm sure I'm sure there's a cap at some points. But the more you move, the better these outcomes are in terms of like disease prevention or mortality prevention. Right? If you prevent diseases, you're obviously decreasing the risk of mortality as well. But um, it doesn't have to be move. It doesn't have to be walking, right? Like somebody enjoys rowing or biking or cycling or jump roping or whatever. Like it just the more you move your body the better the health-related outcomes are going to be. And that's been well-established, uh, I think, for decades, really, in the, in, the, in the research. So you're saying that the relationship is basically linear up to a certain point where... Yeah, but I don't think we've really determined that certain point, right? Because the, the study on steps, I think it's like, it showed almost a 50% uh, 
reduction in all-cause mortality going from 4,000 steps to 9,000 steps. They don't necessarily assess people who walk 15 or 20,000 steps per day, which most places people don't walk. And I'm sure in New York City, a lot of people are probably getting 15,000 plus steps per day. So that would actually be interesting to look at. Um, the reason I say there, there's a cap is like, it's probably not good to walk 24 hours, right? Like to get to, get to a certain number of steps that's going to impact other aspects of your life. So, so there's definitely going to be a cap. I just don't think that cap has really been determined. So we don't know like the point of diminishing returns on step count basically. Yeah. Yeah. And it's all relative, right? Because like, let's say you're walking so much that you're walking like the majority of your day. That's going to take away from other physical activities too. It's a give and take. I don't think anybody's that extreme, but yeah, there's definitely, I would definitely venture to say that there's a point of diminishing returns, just like with resistance training. Um, and that's obviously getting into like the nuances of this stuff, which most people probably don't have to focus on because I don't think most people are walking like 20,000 steps per day. But I would venture to say, you know, if you're, if you're walking like 10,000 steps per day, which I would consider a good amount of walking and you're lifting and perhaps you're doing some sort of cardiovascular activity on top of that, going from like 10,000 to 20,000 isn't going to reduce your risk of death as much as like going from like three or 4,000, which is very little, to like nine or 10,000, right? So it's definitely a point of diminishing return and like, with everything, because I'm lazy, I want to get the most value out of doing like the, little, the least amount of work, right? And I really do think getting to about like eight, 9,000 steps per day is, is a good amount that most people can accomplish and seems to have really positive health outcomes. I feel like walking is a low hanging fruit for people. I, you know, I often get with people that, you know, in a coaching session with somebody who's brand new to exercise, has never exercised before, or even just somebody that I'm talking to, like a, a family member or something. And I don't have time to exercise. And I think they think generally of, they think about exercise as this big grand thing. I have to get in the car, go to the gym, yeah. you know, get, get, get a workout in, then do my cardio, then get back in the car. And it's just this time constraint or this, this, uh, you know, this, this sucker, like it's going to suck up your time. And they don't realize that like, well, you can just start as simple. What would I like you to progress to resistance training because of the added benefits of resistance training. Yeah, absolutely. But the low hanging fruit is just go for a walk around the block. Start there. Yeah. Yeah. Do you for the resistance? Yeah. It is a time suck when like the gym's 30 minutes away. Right. Which for a lot of people it is like, I completely acknowledge the fact that it's a huge luxury for me to have the gym down the street. But for most people from a health perspective, if you can purchase up to like 30 pound dumbbells at home, that's really all you need. Like, sure, you can't be a bodybuilder with 30 pound dumbbells. But if you do push-ups, you get yourself a pull-up bar, you get yourself some bands, you get some dumbbells up to 30 pounds. I mean, dude, doing doing Bulgarian split squats with 30 pounds in each hand, it's really difficult, right? So you can even train your legs pretty hard. Um, it shouldn't be a time suck. And you can really get a fantastic workout, truthfully, in like 20, 30 minutes max if you do like some circuit-style training. Again, it's not bodybuilding by any means. It's not going to be the best for hypertrophy or strength. But it, you will get some hypertrophy you will get stronger, your cardiovascular health will improve and you'll feel fantastic. It doesn't have to be time sick at all. Now, the other really big benefit of the walking stuff that we didn't mention, I think it has huge psychological benefits too. Um, even just like for me, and I think we talked about this last time, like taking a break from work and walking for 15, 20 minutes makes me more productive, which saves me time on my workday. And people are like, oh, I don't have 20 minutes to walk. It's like, BS, <laughs> you're working eight hours a day. You're not working eight hours a day, right? Like if I sit down and concentrate and do all my work for the day and I would to be just productive, it might take me four or five hours. I think that's the majority of people. 
but we tend to drag that on, right? Like we tend to drag it on pretty drastically. And it's usually like you go on YouTube, you have some food, you go on social media, whatever, right? Or you just like, sometimes for me, I just have like a mental block, right? I'm staring at the screen and I'm just like not thinking about anything work-related. And for me, I've found that if I'm tired from work and then I just like sit back and go on social media, it doesn't help at all, which I do a lot. But if I intentionally just get up and go walk for 10 minutes, when I come back, I feel pretty fresh. So I think the psychological benefits are huge. One other thing I've implemented that I think is a benefit of walking, um, it's pretty stress relieving too, right? Actually, this is a recommendation I was giving one of my clients. It's like They were pretty sedentary and they were um, really stress eating, like work was stressful and they would just like result uh, or, or they would just turn to food, eat a bunch of food, right? And so we were talking, I was like, hey, let's do this. Um, how about when you identify that you're being stressed, because I think it's important to identify the trigger, right? Uh, whatever that stressor is, realize that you're stressed. So you should realize when you have the impulse to stress eat versus like you're hungry, right? When you're stressing, you're not really hungry. You're just like, oh, I don't know what to do. I'm going to go eat some food. So when you identify being stressed, I was like, let's implement a, a different stress relieving activity that's not eating. Because usually when you eat, it relieves the stress momentarily, but then you feel bad about eating, which I don't think people should do, but people do anyway, right? They feel bad about eating. Um, so what I was like, let's implement some sort of stress relieving activity. It could be anything. It could be reading a book if you enjoy that. It could be going for a walk. The client's like, I really enjoy walking and going on a podcast. So what I said was like, all right, just trigger the stress. The, the mindful action you should take is going for a 10-minute walk, listening to a podcast, whatever. When you come back, if you still want the food, have the food. Guilt-free eating, right? What, what I think is, is helpful is taking a pause to think about your actions. And perhaps if you're really trying to relieve stress, performing an activity that actually relieves stress, right? Because often we do things thinking it has an effect and it doesn't really have that effect. And we know that eating isn't going to just magically relieve your stress. And what I've found is that the person, one, just feels better about their actions. And two, even if they like still eat after stress eat, like it's usually less, right? Um, because when it is a reaction to a circumstance, it's usually somewhat uncontrolled. You're not thinking about how much you're eating, you're kind of just stuffing your face with whatever. And I think just taking a second to chill, think about what you're doing. If you just go for a walk, it's extremely helpful. So yeah, walking is great. <laughs> so I have a question for you in that regard. Do you think that if you were to tell somebody to for stress relief, like, hey, you're stressed out, you're craving something, you know, whatever the situation may be, to go on a walk versus go on a run, do you think that the body kind of perceives that differently? Like the body would perceive the run as more of an added stress? I think it depends, dude, because I think there's also a difference between mental stress and, and, and physiological stress, right? They are two different things. Like my body is very stressed from training really hard, but I'm not stressed, if that makes sense. Now, I think the benefit of walking for relieving stress is not that the walking itself relieves stress, stress. I think, although I think that's a factor. I think it's the fact that you're just getting outside and giving yourself a little bit of time to breathe and think about everything that's stressing you out, right? Because it's like, I think sometimes you just need a little bit of time to just calm yourself down. Because when things start stressing you out, it can be a lot at once, right? And I'm obviously not a psychologist, but just from my own personal experience, when I'm really stressed, sometimes it's almost irrational, right? Where like the things you're stressing about like are not that big of a deal, but you can't help the way you're feeling about those things. And so usually I like being on my own. I just go outside and go for a walk and, and breathe and like, think through things and like think of a plan to relieve the stress in terms of like what I need to do, what actions do I need to take? So I think it's just the act of like getting out, being outside for a little bit. If you can't go outside because you live somewhere cold, like going on treadmill, putting some music and just 
being in your own head for a little bit and thinking about the situation you're in. Now running, I think can be stress relieving if like a person enjoys running. I think the important part is the word enjoy. Like you just have to enjoy the stress relieving activity that you're doing because then it, it will help relieve stress. If somebody hates running and they just had a super stressful day at work and now you're like, hey, go run. It's probably not gonna be too helpful, right? But if it's a runner who usually runs marathons and they love running, running, getting that runner's high might be stressful leading to them. So I think it's context specific. Yeah, I guess I, I, I'm kind of looking at it from more of a perspective. Like if you're psychologically stressed, that does affect you to some degree physically too. Yeah. Uh, and there is some kind of like a vice versa relationship where like if you're physically stressed, you know, they kind of, it's all part of one, right? They're not necessarily separate things. Yeah. So I guess I'm looking at it more from that perspective. Uh, then what you're talking about is more of a, like, Hey, yeah. like just stress relief from walking. No. Yeah. I, I would say, and I don't have any data to support this, but I would say that psychological stress affects physiological stress more than the other way around. Like when I'm mentally stressed, if I go to the gym, which I enjoy and beat myself up by the time I'm done, like I'm usually not that mentally stressed anymore. So there's definitely a relationship there. I mean, I think everything is related to some extent, right? But I don't think like physiological stress in terms of putting yourself through exercise necessarily negatively impacts psychological stress. Maybe for some people, but I'd say most people, like if you experience a really tough workout and you're just like so exhausted, you don't even have like the mental capacity to even like be stressed. I know that, that might sound funny, you know, but um yeah, I don't know. That's an interesting that's an interesting topic for sure. No, I agree with you because here's the thing. Changing your state of being, whether it be physical or mental and emotional, will change either end. So if I go into yeah. the gym and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I just got this email and I'm so stressed. I always yeah. tell clients, this is the opportunity to take a breath, pause that for a second, go in, focus on something else, something you enjoy. For us, obviously, we all love to work out, so it's easy to pick. I'm going to go into the gym and put my energy into working out. Focusing on my physical body takes the mindset, my mind away from the email or whatever the trigger is, the eating, and I forget about it. And you, like you said, you go through something that's challenging, and you forget about what initially created that mental stress. But then the flip is true too. I think is if I'm physically pushing myself in the gym, when I leave and I read an email after the fact that may be an emotional trigger or some type of stress trigger in my mind, I feel like I can handle it better because I just went through something that I felt successful conquering. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so now, so I, cause I always tell clients this either way, whatever you're choosing, if you're walking, if you're doing a hard lift, if you went grocery shopping and feel super successful in the food choices that you make and you can't get wait to get home and cook the feeling of success and that development of kind of those little wins along the way in yeah. either end of that, you're going to feel so good. You can conquer stress that's mental or you can conquer stress that's physical either way. I feel like it like sandwiches it together in some capacity. Yeah, no, I think what you mentioned of like having little wins, helping you deal with stress is an interesting way to think about it, right? It's almost like the stress is like a negative, the win is like a positive, they kind of cancel themselves out. Yeah. Um, and then I think one thing that's important to differentiate is something that is a win 
versus something that feels good, right? Because you mentioned yes. like going in grocery shopping and making good food, food choices is a win and it makes you feel good about your choices. It does both, right? Mm -hmm. And I think people are like, I just need to do something that feels good. I'm going to eat all this food. Yes. Good in the moment. But is, is it a win? Yes. Maybe, but probably not. Probably right? not. So I think that that's actually really interesting for sure. I think the relationship between like psychology and nutrition is super interesting. I wish um, perhaps I would have studied that a little bit more or chosen a more integrated like practice when I was doing my PhD. But then I wouldn't have learned what I did in terms of like physiology and nutrition, right? So um, <laughs> well, this is I, my excitement. Daron loves all the science stuff and I could people watch and just listen to conversations all day long because I find like, it so intriguing. Yeah, no, for sure. People, people tire me out a lot, so I can't listen to too many. <laughs> I feel like Daron is similar to me in that sense where I'm like, yes. I like the science, but I just want to read and like share this and like not have to deal with people. Oh, I'm the cheese that stands alone. Yeah. But um, there is something that I did want to talk to you about that I, we haven't covered on this show that I think you might be able to shed more light on uh, than I currently can. I've dived into, I did somewhat of a dive into some of this research, early research, current research, uh, artificial sweeteners. Yeah. And there, there are kind of two ways to approach the conversation around artificial sweeteners. There's a way to approach artificial sweeteners, looking at it from a cancer perspective, I'll put it in quotes, I guess. And then also the other way of approaching it is uh, blood glucose homeostasis, right? Like, does it affect your blood sugar? Does it affect your insulin? Where are we at currently? And I know that there's some new, some like research on the newer side in terms of the microbiome and how that interacts and how that may be affecting uh, blood glucose. Yeah. So can you, I guess we'll start with the cancer piece and then we'll go into some of the newer stuff with the microbiome and the, uh, sure. the blood sugar. So um, I'll preface with this. I actually rather start with the glucose and insulin stuff because I, I'm definitely well-versed there. And in the microbiome stuff and cancer stuff, I'm not necessarily well-versed, but I, I have a general understanding of more or less what the evidence has shown. With the blood glucose and insulin stuff, definitely pretty much no effect, right? And I think the reason why is people don't understand how physiology and glucose homeostasis really works. So maybe we can talk a little bit about that, right? So glucose, blood glucose is influenced by carbohydrate consumption, right? Because carbohydrates are converted to glucose. If we eat more carbohydrates, we increase the amount of glucose in our blood. Simple and straightforward. When we talk about artificial sweeteners, it's a, uh, an umbrella term, right? There's many different artificial sweeteners. And I, I would venture to say that we don't have sufficient data on each one of them specifically to just group them all into one group, right? Because there's not that something being natural is better, but there is like artificial, artificial sweeteners and they're just like non-nutritive sweeteners, which are naturally occurring, but they're zero calorie, right? So there's a difference there. We tend to throw, throw non-nutritive sweeteners into artificial sweeteners, which isn't necessarily uh, an accurate term. So can we, can we highlight just for anybody listening to this? What are some examples of non-nutritive sweeteners versus yeah, uh, yeah. the other ones? So like stevia, monk fruit would be non-nutritive sweeteners, naturally occurring, very low calorie. And I specify very low calorie because everything contains a certain amount of calories. The reason why we can use sweeteners and call them zero calories is because some of these sugar alternatives 
are hundreds if not thousands of times sweeter than glucose or table sugar, right? Which isn't 100% glucose. So we have receptors for sweetness in our tongue, right? And the amount of table sugar necessary to elicit uh, the taste of sweetness is much more than what's needed of some of these alternative sweeteners, right? So whereas like, let's say one molecule, and this is just like throwing out random numbers, but it makes sense, it, it'll help the person visualize it. Like if one, okay, if a thousand molecules of table sugar are necessary to elicit some sort of sweet response, you would only need like one molecule of the stevia, right? So even if they're like equally calorically dense, you're just using significantly more of the alternatives, significantly less of the alternative sweetener. And since the like regulation on food labels allows you to like estimate, right? If something I think is under like 10 calories per serving, you're legally allowed to say zero calories. So these things aren't truly zero calories. You know, when you have a diet soda, you might be having, I don't know, two or three calories. I haven't looked into the exact number. Let me ask, let me ask you this just before you continue. Is that why things like sugar alcohols are lower in calories because we're using less or are sugar alcohols actually gram for gram? I believe, I believe sugar alcohols are pretty much indigestible. Um, I could be wrong. I think, there, they, yield, I think they yield some calories, but I think it's maybe it's cut in half or something. I think they are partially digestible. Like the, the food has a certain caloric content, but you can't get all of it, if that makes sense. So some of it, is non-digested and that's like that's an important thing to talk about right because like if you eat 100 calories are you getting those 100 calories depends on the food that's a completely different topic but i think that's that's an aspect of the sugar alcohols so that's non-nutritive sweeteners and then artificial sweeteners would technically fall under the term of non-nutritive sweeteners right but then artificial means man-made right so we have like aspartame um, and stuff like that so in terms of blood sugar regulation First off, it doesn't spike blood glucose because a lot of these artificial sweeteners, non-nutritive sweeteners are not converted to glucose physiologically, right? So if you don't have glucose, you can't increase blood glucose. So it can't increase your blood sugar. On top of that, even if they were converted to an extent to glucose, I just mentioned that the amount present in a food is very, 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 very minimal, right? So it's also dose dependent. If you have hundred grams of table sugar, you'll increase blood glucose more than 50 grams of table sugar. And now the um, glucose response and insulin response, those go hand in hand because insulin is secreted in response to increased glucose, right? And insulin is released so that we can take that glucose from the blood and shuttle it into different tissues, right? Muscle, organs, etc. So if you don't elevate blood glucose, you don't really elevate insulin because um, the way we release insulin is that the pancreas... Uh, essentially senses how much blood sugar we have, right? So if you have higher blood sugar, pancreas senses that, senses the concentration of blood releases more insulin to drop that blood sugar and vice versa. So if you're not increasing the glucose uh, response, which you're not, the only other way to increase insulin would be if the cells in the pancreas, the beta cells that release insulin, are sensing these artificial sweeteners and releasing insulin in response which from my understanding doesn't occur either, right? I haven't actually looked into mechanistic data, but if we just look at clinical data, you have artificial sweeteners, you don't really, you don't really increase insulin, right? Uh, and those beta cells are really sensitive to glucose specific, there's glucose receptors. I think it's GLUT2, correct? I, I forget a little bit of my metabolism. Uh, what, are, what, are, what was that? Beta cells, GLUT2 to sense. Yeah, the pancreas is GLUT2. I think muscles and fat cells are GLUT4. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
Um, so GLUT2 receptors is a receptor specific for glucose that's going to sense glucose and, and release insulin in response. Unless there is some other receptor that also stimulates the release of insulin, that is receptive to some of these non-nutritive sweeteners, then you cannot mechanistically increase insulin by eating the non-nutritive sweeteners if it doesn't stimulate insulin response directly or indirectly by increasing blood sugar, right? So the glycemic response thing doesn't really um, pan out in that sense. So now there's- go Before ahead. you continue with that, I have a- uh, So I, I read some studies that were done, I guess somewhat earlier on, on cephalic phase insulin response that suggested, and- I was kind of weary about it. Nicole, you and I talked about this a long time ago that they were saying if you it was actually it was interesting the way this was put. So like interpretation of it is just crazy to me. So if you look at um, that's why I'm always like, well, if there's a study to it, that doesn't necessarily mean that, that that's true. Right. So if you looked at cephalic phase insulin response, right, is just that it hits your mouth, it hits your taste buds. And then the thought is that that elicits some kind of a preparatory uh, insulin response that like your your mouth is sensing something sweet and therefore your pancreas is uh, secreting insulin in order to prepare for carbohydrates coming in, right? So that was part of the thought. And the study looked at it and said, well, there is cephalic phase insulin response, but we don't see it in liquids. When you're drinking a liquid, we only see it if you, and they didn't see it. They actually did, um, I forget what it's called, where they bypassed they bypassed the whole system and went directly into the stomach, right? With the, with an artificial sweetener. And they compared that. And then they also compared like chewing something with artificial sweetener. And what they said was that the chewing something with artificial sweetener is what elicited the cephalic phase insulin response and drinking something did not. And then I'm thinking over here, one of the things that you need for a cephalic phase insulin response, if I'm not mistaken, is the act of chewing. So then my question is this, it, are you releasing insulin because you're chewing or are you releasing insulin because of the presence of artificial sweeteners in your mouth? And if that were the case, if it was about the artificial sweeteners, then when you're drinking it, that's the same presence, correct? Yeah, that's so as you're talking about that, I'm thinking about a couple of different points. Um, I don't know the mechanisms of cephalic insulin response, to be honest, but if we're using logic, if if artificial sweeteners are present in both situations and one of them is chewing and one is not, then you would you would scratch out that the effect is due to the to the artificial sweetener, right? You would say it's either chewing or some combination of the presence of artificial sweetener and chewing, but definitely not just the artificial sweetener. That's that's mistake number one, I'd say. Mistake number two is if if chewing is one aspect of the mechanism, let's say there's another aspect of the mechanism. I would, I would assume it's the presence of a sweet molecule interacting with some sort of sweetness receptor in the tongue, right? And then we have to ask ourselves, right, in that mechanism, is that receptor specific to glucose or what's it specific to carbohydrate in general? What's it specific to, right? Maybe there is some sort of sensing of sweetness that elicits an insulin response. But even then, let's say that was the case, we know that the amount of insulin secreted is dose dependent on the amount of carbohydrate consumed, right? So let's say if you release a little bit of insulin in preparation for eating some carbohydrate, and that's also stimulated by artificial sweetener, the response would be minimal at best. Because when you have, it, it would be almost like secreting a little bit to prepare the body to use this glucose. 
right? Because we know that if you then have more, you secrete more insulin. And if you eat less, then you secrete less insulin. It's not like you have carbohydrate and you secrete a certain amount of insulin. The dose of insulin secreted is in response to the amount of carbohydrate consumed. And the major mechanism is through sensing of the glucose beta cells in the pancreas. So if anything, it would be a preparatory release of insulin. And I would assume it's minimal. I don't know the concentration, right? And then we can then talk about like small fluctuations of insulin mean nothing, literally mean nothing, right? Um, I could go for a run and then I could chill and eat and like my insulin would do this and like it doesn't mean anything. So I think that would be the main argument I would make against that. Even if artificial sweeteners did cause the release of insulin and maybe they do to a very small degree, that degree, small degree is important to highlight because again, insulin is just released to, to decrease carbohydrate concentration in the blood. So like, if you're not taking it a lot, which you don't when you have artificial sweeteners, you're not going to release a lot of, uh, uh, you're not going to release a lot of uh, insulin, right? And then people talk about, um, oh, you know, and, and let, let's play devil's advocate, not a devil's advocate, let's lean into this and say artificial sweeteners significantly increase insulin or whatnot, like to the same extent that carbohydrates do, okay? Let's say a one-to-one ratio, artificial sweeteners to carbohydrates, if you have uh, you know, one gram of artificial sweetener or like hundred grams of glucose, they have the same insulin response. Let's just pretend. Carbohydrates don't cause insulin resistance, right? So it's like, we focus so much on these fluctuations in insulin. Like it doesn't matter. Like, I think people, it's the same with like uh, amyloid plaques with people with Alzheimer's. You know, originally we thought it was causative. Now we know it's correlational. Like perhaps when you have Alzheimer's, then you develop these plaques or whatever. But there's been medications that target the plaques and don't improve Alzheimer's, right? So it's like insulin resistance is a byproduct of something else. And I have some thoughts on what I think causes insulin resistance. And I know we don't necessarily uh, know the exact cause because it is multifactorial, but we're focusing on the wrong thing, right? We know that obesity is a huge contributor to insulin resistance, excess adiposity itself. And that's because when we have excess adiposity, the fat cells themselves are like crammed together, which elicit a different cytokine profile, right? Like the molecules released from the fat cells are different when you're lean versus obese and when you're obese, you have a more pro-inflammatory cytokine profile and these pro-inflammatory cytokines mechanistically inhibit the actions of insulin. So I think being overweight is a much bigger contributor to insulin resistance. And the question is, well, do artificial sweeteners cause weight gain? Um, and there's a lot of research on this, but I think some of the best research are controlled clinical trials over long periods of time, implementing artificial sweeteners on purpose and seeing changes in weight as a primary outcome, right? Because they're testing for weight change. So they're controlling for variables that influence weight change, and they're directly giving the person artificial sweeteners. And when we look at that data, artificial sweeteners actually seem to help weight loss outcomes. And it's not because artificial sweeteners cause weight loss, but perhaps they can hurt, help curb some cravings, right? I think that's at least my theory. I think that also hasn't been well proven, like the mechanism by which artificial sweeteners help people maintain weight loss. But if you think about it, it makes sense. I mean, I consume artificial sweeteners pretty much every day. I'm going to say non-nutritive sweeteners, better, better term there. Um, I love Coke Zero. I love diet tea. I love, I love artificial stuff. <laughs> um, and for me, it's like, hey, sometimes I want something sweet before bed. Like, I just have some Coke Zero and I'm good. You know, it's just like sensing something sweet in your mouth is pleasurable. And sometimes you want that. And if you can just get it from something that's non-caloric, it can perhaps curb your craving for other stuff. You know, I think that's one thing my wife does too. My wife loves candy dude when i say she's obsessed with candy she has candy every day but she'll also have stuff like cook zero and stuff like that because she doesn't want to get the calories right but she wants to drink something sweet 
I think that's super helpful. You know, one e easy alternative is like, I don't drink any juice or any actual soda. Why? Because I just drink stuff that's sweet that doesn't have calories. Like, same effect. Um, so I think that's the big benefit of using them strategically. Let me ask you this. The, there's so like some of the newer data and I've seen like Lane Norton talk about the recent study that came out and he's like, you're looking at the microbiome and how the, first of all, I think we've just scratched the surface of the microbiome. I tell those people this all the time. We've just scratched the surface of the microbiome. We really literally don't know shit about the microbiome yet. We know a few things and we're learning more. Uh, but I think generally a lot of times when people talk about the microbiome, it's like, as if like, oh, well, I'm certain X, Y, and I'm like, no, you're not because nobody's certain. Like the research doesn't show that. Like I've seen I've seen books written on leaky gut and I'm like, how do you have enough information to fill up a book on leaky gut? It's like, there's not enough, there's not enough data, but there's that study that came out talking about the changes in the microbiome that may affect uh, glucose tolerance. Right. And I, and I saw a uh, kind of a post from Lane Norton where he was talking about the studies. I don't know if you know, which the study that I'm talking about, but He's specifically talking about it and he's like, well, the study is flawed in one major way where they had the subjects do the the um, the glucose tolerance test at home instead of reporting to the lab to do it, which I agree that that's a flaw. However, are we to kind of discredit that there may be a potential? I don't want to say this is a, a lot of the dialogue that people have around like artificial sweeteners. Uh, they wreck your microbiome. And I'm like, well, wrecking your microbiome is like a a vast, like it's just overstatement. You can't say that. Any food that you eat is going to alter, literally anything you eat is going to alter your microbiome. That's just the way things work. Anything you eat, anything, period. Anything, period, right? And yeah, I mean, it could be stress. You could be stressed out one day and that'll alter your microbiome, right? So the question that I have on this is, can we say that maybe there is some effect yeah, yeah, yeah. No, there, there. Yes, I think it's also silly to say there is no effect because everything has some effect on. I I venture to say almost everything. The question is, is it measurable, right? And I, what I want to say is it measurable. I'm talking about like other things having effects on different things that perhaps we haven't even thought about. But the the artificial sweetening thing is measurable, right? But there there's a lot to unpack here, man. Um, First off, I, I can't recall to the degree to which it impacted glucose tolerance, but I'm going to assume it's minimal and that's an important variable, right? Um, in terms of the microbiome, I'm definitely not well-versed in the microbiome literature because truthfully, to this point, I don't find it all that interesting. At least me personally. Wow, really? I'm surprised by that. I, I really? That, yeah. I honestly like, so I'm, I'm actually thinking the direction I might go is... I'm always like either microbiome or exercise. There's actually a professor that we had uh, from Rutgers on this podcast that does, she studies both. She studies the effect of exercise yeah, on the microbiome. microbiome. Yeah. It's, so, it's, I just really like stuff that's applicable and I don't think it's necessarily too applicable yet. Right. Cause I, when I was doing my PhD, one of my colleagues, like the study we were doing on is dried plum and bone health. And so her, her little like, side project for her dissertation was the effects of dried plum on the microbiome and just like seeing changes in different uh, microbial composition. And I'm like, it's cool. Like you're seeing some change, but like, what does it mean? And I, I know that this legwork is important to then determine what does it mean. I'm just not too interested in the legwork side of things. Like it, it doesn't, like I read it and I'm just like, okay, what do I do with this now kind of thing? And maybe it's because I haven't 
dive into it like enough. But but here's here's like the couple of concepts that I do understand. Um, we all have a different microbial composition in our gut, right? And the microbial composition in our gut is influenced by everything, right? It seems like it's relatively reactive in the sense that like, if you drastically change up your diet, you're going to change up the microbial composition. I think to me that reflects that the microbial composition is changing to be in a state that's optimal for whatever your current state is. Not that necessarily it's changing in a good or bad way. I think the terms good or bad are so like relative, right? Because there are things that are good for some things and bad for others and vice versa, right? And now- Well, it's just we like anything else, kind of like food-wise where you're like the dose determines yeah, yeah, the poison, yeah. right? So yeah, yeah. how much quote unquote bad bugs, maybe you need a certain amount of those. Yeah, exactly. That's why like, I don't even like using the term bad bugs or bad anything because it, it like the dose is important, right? The dose makes the poison as stereotypical as this, but it, it it's true, right? So within a range, it's important. Like cortisol, the stress hormone, like you need some cortisol, right? Insulin, bad. We know that's not true, but let's say insulin was bad. You need some insulin, right? That's what I always tell people. Like if insulin was so bad, why do diabetics need insulin, right? Type 1 diabetics, <laughs> They have zero insulin. Like they should be the healthiest person. They should never, you know, like it's, it's just silly. But anyways, going back to the microbiome stuff, I just, like you mentioned, the amount of data currently doesn't necessarily tell us too much, right? We know that certain things influence certain changes in our microbial composition. And we know that certain families of these microbes are associated with positive health outcomes and some are associated with negative health outcomes. Things we don't know it's even like, and this is just a thought that just came to my head, is even like the interaction between those microbes. I'm sure that's important. They share a common environment. I'm sure there's some sort of interaction there, right? And everything is a give and take. Like if somebody has, let's say somebody's a vegan and follows a very low protein diet, and let's say this person's now interested in building muscle and they start eating more meat, well, their microbial composition is gonna change. Perhaps you have a little bit more of those bad microbes, but hey, the protein didn't be beneficial for building muscle. And we know that muscle is important for, for physical function and for longevity. So it's like, how do you weigh those pros and cons? I think it's pretty much impossible to weigh those pros and cons, right? And then when we go a step further and we get to the point of like saying that, oh, you know, if you consume this artificial sweetener, whatever, whatever food, blank food, if you consume blank food and it has X effect on the microbiome, let's say you increase these, these microbes that are associated with obesity or cardiovascular disease. My first question is, is that causative, right? Because we don't know that. Maybe it's, you know, I don't know. There could be a number of, of different variables there. And then question two is what is the magnitude of that effect? Because what people don't understand is like, when we look at data and we say that a certain type of food, let's say red meat, for example, and I'm gonna throw out a random percentage here because I don't know the exact percentage. But let's say if you increase your consumption of red meat by a serving per day or by two servings per day, um, then your risk of colorectal cancer goes up by 3% or 4%, right? But usually the increase in the risk of the disease is relatively minimal. Lifestyle factors will decrease your risk of colorectal cancer much more significantly than the amount that it will increase by eating some red meat, right? So let's say, let's say your overall lifestyle, right? Let's say your overall lifestyle risk of colorectal cancer is, cancer is 17%. Obviously we can't come to that conclusion because there's too many variables that influence, but let's say we can measure it. And it's like your risk of colorectal cancer is 17%. If you increase your risk, if you increase your, your red meat consumption, now it's gonna be at 21%. Okay, great, it's a little bit higher. 
But now what if eating that meat increases my protein intake, allows me to do other things that increase my skeletal muscle mass, and I reduce my risk of cardiovascular disease by 23% and diabetes by 15, 20%. Like, how do you weigh those risks? You know, it's, I think, pretty much impossible. That's why when like, we're like saying like, oh, the artificial sweetener has some adverse effects on the, on the microbiome. There's some evidence that it could potentially increase, slightly increase the risk of some cancers. I'm like, okay, but what if artificial sweetener is helping that person stay normal weight and not gain weight, right? Or what if this is somebody who used to be overweight and lost weight and artificial sweeteners has helped them? Like is telling them don't have the artificial sweetener helpful? Maybe if they can maintain their weight, but if they can't, then perhaps it's not helpful. And we can't weigh the benefit of like the, being lean and healthy versus like having some artificial sweetener. So these discussions, I feel like you and I enjoy them because we get into the weeds and like focus on these <laughs> topics. Like for the general public, like just saying like artificial sweeteners increase your risk of cancer. I don't think it's too helpful. Right. So I agree. He, here's the here's the thing that I'll say, and I've said this time and time again on this podcast is it's all about looking at a lot of it is about looking at risk factors and like what lifestyle, what aspects of your current lifestyle are putting you at risk and what things can you remove or add to put you at less risk and what things do you want to have that you're just like, all right, you know what? I'm willing to have a little bit of risk here, but I'm taking care of everything else in my life and I'm generally a healthy person. And to your point with the weight thing is to me, it's far more risky to be obese. Yes, 100%. On all causes, cause, right? Worse effects on your microbiome than a little bit of artificial <laughs> exactly, exactly, right? You you're going to you talk you want to talk about an inflammatory environment, be obese, right? So, it's a lot more detrimental to your health to be obese. And then this is where context is everything because I've had conversations with people and they're like, I'm like, what's the alternative to drinking 2 liters of Coke every single day? What's the alternative? Well, just drink water. And I'm like, well, then you've never coached anybody before because you don't understand that that's not the next logical step for somebody. So if somebody's yeah. drinking two liters of Coke on a day-to-day -day basis and I can get them to drink Coke Zero, which tastes very similar to regular, especially now they've changed Coke Zero, the flavor. And I'm like, Bro. oh, this, I'm like this regular. <laughs> I'm like, there's no, there's no way that there are no calories in this or close to no calories. But the dude, I don't care what people say. That shit's addicting. Like, I have a Coke Zero and I want another one. It's so good, dude. It's good. It it's good. delicious. But yeah. the point that I'm making is that the next logical step is like, hey, like, let's wean yeah. you off. And if I can get you to this point, then maybe I can push a little further or. Maybe later on, I don't even need to push further. Like maybe we're yeah. just good here. Yeah, it's not about completely completely uh, eliminating risk, right? It's about reducing risk. And I think you, you learned that when you're coaching, right? Like you can't tell somebody who drinks Coke every day to not drink Coke. Like it's just not going to happen. Good luck. Yeah. And that's where people are like, the people that are like, uh, just work hard. Like <laughs> so dumb, you know? It's like, it's, it, I don't know. I think yeah. there's there's some utility to that because I do think some people need to just be slapped in the face and told like, Hey, just, just do this. You're a little too soft. But a lot of people like, yeah, behavior change is really difficult, right? There's even, and I'm not, I'm not going to be hypocritical. There's things that I like to change about my behavior that I don't that are incredibly hard to change, right? Like I wish I would wake up an hour earlier. There's no reason I don't. I just don't. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because I drive, I drive Nicole crazy with the science stuff because oftentimes she's like, Daron, like that shit, it doesn't matter. And I'm like, you're she's not wrong. That's about it. not what I said first. No, but no. 
What? Well, I no, say there, it doesn't matter. There, there are there are instances where like, well, how does this apply to my fucking clients? Right. And I'm like, I and I understand that viewpoint. Um, And I think that there's yeah, con- you have to always put context and you always have to put the client first and look at, OK, well, what is what are this? I know what the research says, but what does this client need right now? I think that is also you got it. You have to kind of have a balance between that. I think when we're in science, we love isolating the effect of one thing and just life doesn't work that way like at all right so it's it's i think it's impossible to say let's say this person consumes artificial sweeteners and they're able to not have them and like drink water i think it's impossible to say that that change will reduce the risk of x outcome because then there's like so many secondary effects that we don't think of right like let's let's just random out of uh random out of context here let's say i have a client right they um, drink a Coke Zero every day. And I come to them like, hey, like there's a state that artificial sweeteners increase the risk of cardiovascular disease, right? Now let's say now they change, um, they change it up. They don't drink their Coke Zero anymore. Now they drink some tap water. Maybe they live in, the, in a place where the tap water isn't that good. We can't control for that, right? The quality of tap water. Maybe, maybe, maybe they walk to the gas station every day to walk there to get their Coke Zero. Maybe that's a thousand steps they just cut out of their day. They're not walking to buy it anymore. Like, my wife and I, we drink Coke Zero, but we have a gas station down the road. We walk to it to get our drink. Um, just something we do, right? We're like, we're not going to have a bunch of it at the house. Like, we want it. We just walk there and grab one. That's a couple hundred steps, you know? So it's like these secondary effects that we literally cannot account for. And science is just like, bam, bam, this is it, right? And, and like, it tells you the effect, but it does not tell you, it does not tell you anything about secondary effects because that's not the way science works. It also so doesn't tell you. It also doesn't tell you uh, like application, right? Like yeah. how how does this apply, and how are you going to deliver this message to the lay public? And I think that's where there's a gap in you know science versus what's going on in the in the actual world. But I also think that's one of the beauties of you know being you know where where we come from, and also like the background that we come from, and also being able to coach, so you kind of get both perspectives. Dude, it's really funny because the longer I coach, the less I care about the specific like semantics of like scientific studies, truthfully. So uh, now you understand when I say, I don't think it doesn't matter. It of course yeah. matters. It's so important. But I'm, yeah. I say that. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I'm a coach's coach, as Jerome calls me. I'm on the ground level. Like I'm trying to get this information to general population, whatever you want to call them, normal people that have really stressful lives, really crazy jobs. They're not always thinking of health and wellness. They're not, it's not in the forefront of their mind. So blanket statements like artificial sweeteners are good or bad, or this or that, or you should be having water and not this. It's that it is not, that does not help from a coaching standpoint. I need to just get them from knowing to doing in the simplest, like you were talking about your content, in the simplest, caring, loving, uplifting, motivating, coachable way. So I feel like when I know all this stuff, I'm up here in the rafters. But when I come down on the ground and I'm talking to someone in the gym or a client, I have to bring all of that down to a place where it's relatable, it's kind, there's conversation, there's yeah. a coachable moment. You know what I mean? Like we have to know that as professionals, but our clientele 
they're just looking for us to get through the weeds and get to the information that's going to make the change for them. And so I need it to be something that's a good conversation in a way that they understand it. And, you know, you know, no, those are great points. And then what I was trying to also get at when I said, I care less about the specifics of studies is like, sometimes I want to give advice that like, I haven't seen evidence on, but like, I know it helps me, right? Like, I'm working on developing a course. And like part of that course is like nutritional strategies to help mitigate hunger. There's a lot of evidence-based strategies there too. But for example, I spent probably like an hour trying to find studies to see if eating at the same times every day helps regulate hunger more than eating at different times throughout the day. I couldn't find a single study that's a well-controlled clinical study that demonstrates that. But I know for sure that if I eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner at the same yeah. time every day, it helps regulate my hunger better. So that's one of the things I want to talk about, but like I don't have any references for it necessarily. Maybe I haven't found it, but I don't have any references, but I'm willing to share that information. Yeah. And then on top of that, the opposite, if a client tells me that something helps them, even if it's not evidence-based. Exactly. Not right? Like <laughs> if my client tells me like, hey, I like a keto diet. I'm like, this is what's going to help me lose weight. And if I don't do this, I'm like, I don't, I don't lose weight. I'll try to talk them out of it and discuss other options and perhaps try other things. But like, if they really like a keto diet and like it works for them, I would say the benefit of like being healthy and normal weight outweighs like the benefit of eating the carbs if they're going to, you know, can't control themselves with the carb intake. So I'm not going to be there and be like, oh, keto diets are suboptimal because X, Y, Z. Like, sure. But again, like we talked about earlier, it's about mitigating risk and being overweight and obese is by far the, the biggest risk, right? So any strategy that can help a person maintain a normal, healthy weight and be active, I think is going to significantly outweigh like the specifics of food choices, in my opinion. I mean, number one, genetics, right? You can't do anything about it. And that's probably going to be the biggest risk factor. And number two is I really do think being sedentary and obese, like those two things in combination will have the largest effect on adverse health outcomes. And then specific food choices, I, I think go way before, uh, way after that, Yeah. right? Like, yes, should everybody eat plenty of veggies? Yes. But if you don't eat any veggies and you are lean, or if you eat a ton of veggies and you are obese, tell me who's worse off health-wise. Right. right? So, so that's what I mean by like the specific semantics of the studies. I'm not going to argue with a client that something's not going to help them because research says it doesn't, because we, research is also about averages, right? So there's a lot to unpack there. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think sometimes people, when people think about research, they don't understand that like a lot of things haven't been studied yet, or a lot of things haven't been studied in the proper way that they should be studied. So like, it's just crazy out there when like, you just hear people saying things that are like just outrageous. It's, you know, it's, I say this all the time, like you'll find an expert with somebody who is like, like you just said, like, you know, I, I feel like this is a thing. I can't validate it with research. Maybe it's a thing, right? You speak in a lot of maybe, kind of, it depends, like that kind of terminology. It makes you sound like you don't know anything, bro. Well, but, here, but here's the, the thing. But here's the thing, though, is the reality is that science knows less than it than people actually think it does. You get what I'm saying? Like, it's not, we, we know there are less things that we do know than there are things that we yeah, for sure. You know what I mean? Unless you're unless you're like Paul Saladino and you know everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you just walk around the supermarket and you're just yeah. like Yeah, that's the one big issue. That's yeah. the one big issue with social media, like for people like us. We're like somebody asks a question and we're like, well, maybe it depends because of these reasons. 
and you got Paul Salerno, you know, don't eat this food, it's poison, blah. Like, you know, it's like, how can you compete with that? People love it. Yeah. You know? Well, I just had that thing you saw it on Instagram where I was talking <laughs> about uh, Flav City, and I was like, he's the app. I think he's worse than Paul Saladino because I'm like, people are hitting me up about like, what about gums and natural? Fla-? I'm like, natural flavors? You're fucking worried about natural flavors, really? And I had to go in, and I'm like, I'm looking up the definition, the FDA definition of natural flavors, and what kind? Con- I'm like, yeah, no, it's natural. It comes from animal base or plants. Dude, and the people that focus on those little details are the people that yeah. are not doing the big things. Yeah. It's like, oh, I'm not losing weight because I'm not like I'm having natural flavors. Yeah, right? come on. I do think I do think this. Um, I think from a content standpoint, though, you know, I think a lot of people are drawn to, at least from my experience, the more nuanced stuff like that just seems to be what sells in the environment in like the online nutrition environment. Yeah, I mean, it sells for us because that's what we do. But we can't also ignore the fact that like people like Paul Salon, you know, have huge followings and make a lot of money off their bullshit. You know? Yeah, yeah. Joey, I would love to talk to you for 20 years uh, straight, <laughs> continuously. We can go on and on. We can talk. I, I got a whole list of things that are coming up in my mind that I'm like, man, we should talk about this. But I am going to save that for next time. Uh, yeah, dude, I'll be on here whenever you want. Yeah, fabulous. Uh, as always, we love having you on. Uh, we really respect you as a professional. I think, uh, you know, I really Thank like you. everything that you're doing. Congrats on the, um, where, where are you at on YouTube right now? How many, uh, how many, uh, 900 subs around there. Nine, okay. <laughs> All right. Well, I, I have no doubt. Um, that, I have no doubt that you'll get there. Um, and that your page, yeah. your page will do very well. And if you enjoyed this episode, click subscribe, give us five stars, write a review, share this with a friend and you'll hear us next week. 